many siblings keep a lot of personal worries to themselves because they don't want to burden their mom or dad and they see how burdened they already are. And so one of the unfortunate consequences of that is that they don't end up having people to talk with. Welcome to Wild Peace, a place where parents of kids who struggle can come together for camaraderie, inspiration, and support. If a child in your life faces learning and attentional challenges, developmental differences, or mental health concerns, this is for you. I'm your host, Kendra Wild. Hey, friends. You know the old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease? Even if it's not exactly appropriate, I can't help but think that it applies to families when one child is struggling more than the others. The one who needs the most attention and support gets it. And that makes sense. Parents with multiple kids sometimes have to practice triage. But mental health challenges don't just affect the child who's struggling. They affect the whole family. My guest today, Emily Rubin, noticed that siblings were, in many ways, being overlooked. Having a brother or sister who's struggling or in crisis can be confusing, upsetting, and even traumatic. Siblings need their own kind of support. So Emily started a program called the Sibling Support Program, a family-centered mental health initiative to support families and siblings during a child or adolescent's psychiatric hospitalization. After gaining recognition for that program, Emily became the director of sibling support at the Eunice Kennedy Shriver Center, working to build resiliency and decrease trauma among siblings of children with mental health needs. And if that isn't enough, she's also the executive director of the Massachusetts Sibling Support Network, which is a nonprofit committed to addressing the needs of siblings of people with disabilities. In our conversation, Emily explains the many emotions siblings experience when their brother or sister is struggling. We talk about many of the different ways that siblings react, and Emily offers strategies that parents can use to support their other children to help them cope and adjust in the best possible way. If you haven't really considered the sibling perspective, or maybe if you're wondering if you pay enough attention to your other kids, this will set you on the right path. I'm so honored to bring you the wonderful Emily Rubin. Good afternoon, Emily. I'm so excited to speak with you today. I've been looking forward to this for like months. So thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Emily, you and I have some friends in common. And it's funny when I started this podcast, I think each of them connected with me at some point and said, you have to have Emily Rubin talk about siblings. So that's what we're doing. Great. So maybe we can just start by talking about what led you to develop a sibling support program. Sure. About 10 years ago, I noticed that there were no supports for siblings on inpatient psych units. And even though the events leading up to a child's psychiatric hospitalization often were fairly traumatic for family members, I wasn't able to find supports in place for them. So I decided to create a program called the Sibling Support Program, a family-centered mental health initiative. 
the goals of that program are to build resiliency among siblings of kids with mental health issues, decrease their trauma, and stabilize families. Mm, Wow. And has that program evolved since you started it? Yes. So initially when I started it, it was the sibling support demonstration project because I wasn't sure if it would really be useful and if it would take off. And initially I was hoping to have about 50 participants if I was lucky. And eight or nine years later, I've had over 2,000 family members participate in this program across multiple sites. So that's really testimony to the need that is out there and that this program meets an important gap in service among families of kids with mental health issues. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't even imagine what it's like for siblings because they probably just get cast aside when there's some kind of a crisis like that. And I mean, understandably, the parents are really just focused, you know, 90% of their attention on the child in crisis and the siblings maybe just get shunted off to the side and don't know what's going on or, or what's going to happen next. I mean, what is that experience like? Well, that's a great question. What we have found among the siblings that we've worked with in this program is exactly what you said. Many of them are not getting the parental attention that they need or want. And that's really because the child with mental health needs does get the bulk of parental attention. And what we find among the siblings are different patterns. The first pattern is a pervasive sense of confusion. There's concern around safety. Sometimes there's shame or embarrassment. There's a love-hate relationship. There's parentification, and that's when children take on adult-level responsibilities before they're developmentally ready to do so. So there are a lot of very conflicting feelings that these siblings are carrying around. And the sibling experience actually closely mirrors the parent's experience. So when a parent is feeling overwhelmed or frightened or guilty, then chances are the sibling is feeling something similar. And the other thing that's interesting about parental attitudes is that parental attitudes toward disability generally trickle down to the siblings. So if a parent is able to embrace the child with a disability, then the sibling tends to have that approach as well. On the flip side, if a parent has a lot of denial or anger or blaming a lot, then the sibling picks up on that. Wow, that's serious. And you think that a lot of times parents, we can get caught up in our own emotions so much that we maybe don't stop and turn and look at a sibling and say, wait, how are you feeling about all this? And uh, Or maybe we don't think about how our own attitude affects them. That's That's amazing. Well, I think it's pretty natural as a parent to focus on the crisis at hand and to give attention to the child who seems to need it the most. But what ends up happening is that the siblings fly under the radar. And I hear a lot of parents say about the siblings, oh, she's my easy child or she's the good child. And it can feel very overwhelming for parents to recognize that 
the sibling might be struggling as well. And most of the siblings that I work with have some degree of anxiety stemming from the mental health issue of the brother or sister. Some of the siblings struggle with PTSD. Those siblings typically are the ones who have been subjected to verbal or physical aggression from the brother or sister with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. What do siblings say to you in general? What do they express? Well, many siblings carry strong feelings of guilt, especially the younger siblings who don't understand the difficult choices that parents are faced with when they're raising a child with mental health issues. And they often feel that there's a double standard. You know, one example I often share with people to demonstrate the sense of confusion for siblings is they might see their brother or sister throw a chair across the room and swear at their mom or dad. And then 20 minutes later, everyone's sitting around having ice cream because the parents are trying to de-escalate the situation. They're picking and choosing their battles. And most of all, they're trying to keep everybody safe. But from the siblings' perspective, they see that their brother just had really bad behavior and wasn't punished for it. And if they had done that, they would lose their privileges and there would be consequences. So that's one of the, what I said earlier, this pervasive sense of confusion that contributes to it. And I also mentioned guilt. I threw them together in the same sentence, but they're actually different. And with the guilt dynamic, Many siblings keep a lot of personal worries to themselves because they don't want to burden their mom or dad and they see how burdened they already are. And so one of the unfortunate consequences of that is that they don't end up having people to talk with. They don't have caring adults that understand what they're going through, who they feel that they can share things with, even though the parents are very well-meaning and love all their kids, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I've had siblings say things like, I should have known that she was trying to kill herself. I was at my, I was at the kitchen table doing my homework and she was upstairs and I should have known she was taking pills. Actually, I did have a nine-year-old boy say that to me. And that really stuck with me because I was struck by how this was a young child who Of course, he was not responsible for his brother or sister's suicide attempt, but he felt guilty. And I've had other siblings say similar things like, if only I had let her choose a movie, then she wouldn't have freaked out and she wouldn't have punched the wall. And then dad wouldn't have called the ambulance and and things like that. I should preface this with these are siblings of kids who have been admitted for psychiatric hospitalization. So that's a fairly extreme group that I'm talking about. Yeah, but in general, I can imagine siblings will have all kinds of feelings, even when we're not in crisis mode. I think just things like, I feel jealous, I want some attention, or gosh, this is so embarrassing, or how come I always have to flex for that other one? And so even when they're not in crisis, they're carrying a lot of heavy like you said, conflicting emotions, I'm sure. And maybe don't even, maybe are a little scared even to admit or identify those feelings. Yes. I mean, one of the outcomes of a very intense sibling relationship is having a love-hate dynamic. And many of these siblings are fiercely protective of their brother or sister, even though they've also been 
in many cases, victimized by them. And this love-hate relationship, as I said, it's it's fairly common. You know, that's when siblings are best friends one minute and worst enemies the next. It is a really interesting dynamic. We see a lot of siblings that are overprotective. And that dynamic is particularly compelling to me because these, as I said, are these are kids who their brother or sister has lashed out at them and yet they often come to their defense. They'll come to their rescue. They might challenge mom or dad and say, leave him alone. He didn't mean to do that. Mm. The flip side of overprotectiveness is avoidance. And that's when siblings kind of throw up their hands and don't want to have anything to do with their brother or sister who's lashed out at them. And I often see siblings who report going to their room when they've just had enough of the chaos at home. And then parents often come to me and say they're very concerned that the sibling is retreating to his or her bedroom. And I feel like that's actually a positive coping strategy. And I I tell parents that, that for the sibling to have the wherewithal to recognize a dysfunctional situation and remove him or herself and go to a safe and calm and comforting place is actually a very, it's a very positive coping strategy. That's interesting. I just want to go back a little bit to this idea that to look at how some of the different siblings accommodate. So maybe some become overprotective and others, you know, practice avoidance when they can. What other ways do you see siblings sort of responding to these situations or accommodating their siblings? Sure. Well, one thing that comes to mind that I mentioned earlier is parentification. And that's really a compensatory mechanism. When a child's level of stress is so high that they're taking on adult level responsibilities to try to have more of a sense of control over their environment. So we see a lot of little mothers and little fathers among the siblings. Siblings tend to be much more independent than their peers. And it's because they're accustomed to less parental attention. So we see siblings at a very young age who are able to make their own meals and pack their own backpacks and pack their own suitcases and put themselves to bed. And, you know, that's, it's bittersweet because on the one hand, that sense of independence really bodes well for their future, but it's bittersweet because the way they've come to that fierce sense of independence is by not getting as much attention as they might want. So they tend to be much more resourceful than their peers. And of course, I should tell you that these are all generalizations. Not every sibling is going to experience these things. These are patterns and themes that have emerged in my work. Interesting. And do you ever highlight sort of red flags that parents should be looking for? I mean, what should parents be doing in and out of a crisis for siblings? What do siblings wish we knew? Well, that's a great question. And there are a couple strategies that I like to share with parents. But the first thing I'll say is that if a child experiences trauma at the hands of a brother or sister with mental health need, or if any child experiences trauma, the trauma doesn't go away on its own. 
it has to come out in some form. Siblings can talk about what happened. They can draw it out. They can dance it out. They can do physical activity. But that's one thing that I'd like to share with parents because what I end up hearing from a lot of parents is that the sibling's doing just fine. Mm. And that's maybe what they see on the outside. But on the inside, we know that if a child has experienced trauma, then that is going to come out at some point. You know, oftentimes we see siblings in their teen years fall apart because the trauma kind of emerges at that point. Some of the strategies that we encourage families to use are the first strategy is validating the sibling's experience. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. And this is an example I've used with parents in the past. So this is based on actually an experience I had with a family. I was working with a mom and her 13-year-old daughter, and they had a 16-year-old son who was hospitalized and had been very aggressive to his sister. And the sister said to the mom, I hope my brother never comes home from the hospital. And the mom was really surprised to hear that. And she said, well, that's not true. I know you miss your brother. I know you love your brother. Remember all those fun times you had together. And I watched as the outsider, as this 13-year-old girl just shut down. And it was as though she was completely unheard. So to validate that child's experience, the mom could have said something like, I can understand why you wouldn't want your brother to come home. He's been very abusive to you. And that makes sense to me. And by validating the child's experience, it does a couple of important things. The first thing is that it lets the child know that you actually get what's going on with them as a parent, because a lot of kids think that parents don't know anything. (laughs) They don't understand anything. So this is a way that you can really let the child know that you actually do get what's going on with them. By reflecting back what you've heard, the child feels like their feelings are just as important as everybody else's and that you value what they have to say. So it's a small tip, you know, the validation, but it really goes a long way. And the other thing that goes a long way is having one-on-one time with siblings. And of course, oftentimes in families where there are multiple children, it's difficult to have one-on-one time, but one-on-one time doesn't have to be anything elaborate. It can just be the parent turning off his or her cell phone and sitting on the couch together and watching a favorite TV show or taking a dog on a walk or even baking or doing something together in which the parent doesn't need to have any heavy conversation. The parent just needs to be there. So that presence, the parental presence in that one-on-one time has the same impact as validation. It lets the child know that the parent values them enough to set some time aside and turn off their phone um, and that they're just as important as every other member of the family. Yeah, those are such good ideas. I was thinking back to validating. Everyone feels better when they know they've been seen and heard and just giving siblings a voice and telling them that you appreciate what they say has got to go a really long way. And I was thinking about the one-on-one time back years ago when one of my sons was really struggling. The younger son 
was having a hard time and I was introduced into the sibling support world, thankfully. And I was coached, you know what, spend some one-on-one time with him, even if it's just, hey, you know what, would you come with me to the post office? I haven't seen you in a while. It was a minor thing and it made a world of difference just to be, you know, special. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. Mm-hmm. There are a few sibling support efforts happening out there, but not enough. It's just, it's, there's such a huge need, isn't there? Yes, there is. And in Massachusetts, there is the Massachusetts Sibling Support Network. And that's an organization that I'm involved with. And that organization strives to support siblings of people with all kinds of disabilities across the sibling's lifespan. And we do have a resource page on the website that lists sibling supports uh, geographically organized. So oh, great. That's a great resource. Great. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes so we can put that in there and any other resources that you want to share. I was just thinking when you introduce parents to these strategies, what kind of results do you see? Are they reporting changes just from these little tweaks? Yeah, we have had families report some changes. You know, in terms of data outcomes, I'm in the process of rolling out a follow-up survey among families that have participated in the sibling support program and families that have opted not to participate among it within a hospital setting. So I don't have hard data that I can share right now, but I do have some anecdotal data that families have gotten back in touch with me and have said that they've used some of the strategies that they learned in the sibling support program. One of the strategies that a parent wrote to me about was, we often talk about what kind of language to use with siblings about what's happening with their brother or sister with a mental health issue. And this is actually another source of confusion for siblings because they overhear their parents say different things to different people about the same situation. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, that's interesting. Right. The sibling starts to think, well, who can I talk to and what's okay to say? So I did get a, a letter from a mom who talked about using the language that she learned about in the sibling support program, she felt like it really opened up some good doors for communication. I bet because I was thinking sometimes maybe parents think that we're protecting the siblings by just not really explaining the issues in too much detail. And I know in cases where people feel a sense of stigma and don't want to share too much, say to outsiders, It could be really confusing for a sibling to hear, well, wait a minute, why did you describe it that way? That's not how you describe it to your grandmother. (laughs) Right, exactly. You know, I feel like every family has its own culture around mental health. And some families are very open about a mental health crisis and they talk to anybody about it. And other families are much more reserved and they don't want to share what's going on. And of course, From my vantage point, I think that although there's no right or wrong way to have a culture in your family, it is what it is. I think that the more open we can be around mental health issues in our families, the more we're fighting stigma and the more we have a chance to educate people. But getting back to what you said, it can be very confusing for all the family members, but particularly siblings. Some of the 
recommendations we give to parents around how to talk to siblings is that we always encourage families to use age-appropriate language as a general rule of thumb, less information is better when the child is younger. And as a child is older and they're more able to understand and kind of comprehend the situation, then you can give more information. What I always tell parents is that, then this pertains to psychiatric hospitalizations. If a child who is over the age of nine or 10 is in the hospital, I believe that they are old enough to participate in a conversation about what people are saying about them inside and outside of the family. So I encourage parents, if they're parenting with someone else, we do see a lot of single parents because the stress of a child with mental health issues can really be challenging for marriages and relationships to endure. But if a parent is co-parenting, I encourage the parents themselves to figure out what they feel comfortable having other people know. That's really the first step. And once they understand and figure out what they're comfortable with, then they can pitch three explanations for why the child is in the hospital to the child and let him or her choose what explanation they want being shared with the public. So for example, a mom or dad might say to their son, if people ask where you've been, we can tell them that you struggle with depression and needed to go to the hospital. We could tell them that you're not feeling well and you needed a timeout. Or we could tell them that you needed a medication change. You know, it really depends on what the family's comfort level is. And then the child who's in the hospital chooses one of those responses or one of those explanations. And then that becomes kind of the talking point for the family. So the sibling is able to go to school. And when the teacher says, hey, where's your brother? Then the the sibling can say, oh, he, he wasn't feeling well and he has a private medical issue or whatever the talking point is. One thing we know is that children should never have to keep secrets about scary things happening at home. And that will lead directly to anxiety and depression and a whole host of other issues. It's a balancing act because many families want to protect the privacy of the child in the hospital or the child with mental health issues. But we don't want to be encouraging children to lie. A lot of the siblings in the work that I've done have been instructed to lie by very well-meaning parents who are trying to shield them. And, you know, they might say, when asked about their brother or sister, they've been told to say things like, oh, he lives with grandma now, or he went to Disney World. Um, and, you know, these are kids who maybe have witnessed a suicide attempt or have, you know, seen police show up at their house. And so... I see that these parents are in a state of crisis themselves. It's tremendously stressful to be raising a child with mental health issues, especially when it requires inpatient hospitalization. And I think these parents are doing an incredible job. So I don't mean to say anything negative about the parents. I really feel like they're well-meaning, they're well-intentioned. And it's a very difficult situation to find yourself in as a parent. You know, nobody signs up for for that. Yeah, I really love, though, your idea of coaching them on sort of pitching three explanations, because I hear a lot of parents 
in my world who talk about whose story is it to share? Like, yeah, I'd like to break down stigma, but it's also my child's story. And so having them participate in it and then making sure the siblings know what their script is and it's honest, but it's either minimal disclosure or maximal or somewhere in between, depending on where your family falls. Right. Absolutely. And also this kind of goes back to your mentioning a few times about how language is so important and giving people language to use. And I can see how the language parents use in these stories can have an impact on how the siblings pick up and the identified child pick up on their parents' attitude. Right. And, you know, I'm a a fan of Ross Green's work with explosive children. He says that when the demands of the environment exceeds a child's ability to manage, that's when you start to see behavioral problems. And, you know, there is so much stigma in our society and kids are often labeled as bad kids or lazy kids or mean kids. And we know that kids want to do well. They don't want to be lashing out. They don't want to be hurting people that they love. So, you know, the language piece is really important. Mm-hmm. Their behavior is often just a symptom of a skill they're lacking or something that's going on where they need support. Right. So what are some realities for siblings when we fast forward to adult life? I've kind of found from my experience, which isn't as deep as yours in the sibling world, but it seems like a lot of them end up finding careers in compassionate fields themselves. And in some cases, maybe they end up even providing some caregiving for their sibling. You're absolutely right. So what we know about research among siblings of people with all kinds of disabilities is that there's a profile among these siblings as adults. They tend to be very kind and generous. They do tend to enter helping professions as adults. They also often use the sibling relationship as a litmus test for romantic relationships. So I've heard many adult siblings tell stories about introducing their brother or sister with a disability to a future mate and kind of see how that person responds. And that can be a deal breaker. (laughs) That hadn't crossed my mind. (laughs) So what we do find is that um, adult siblings tend to be extremely accommodating in relationships. And of course, you know, many of them have grown up loving people with tremendous challenges. So they do tend to be accommodating. Now, it's a slightly different story among siblings of individuals with severe mental illness, because what I just told you about the altruism and the generosity and the kindness, that's really a composite picture of siblings of people with all kinds of disabilities. But when we look at siblings of individuals with major mental illness, the picture isn't quite as rosy. A lot of those siblings don't want to be involved with a brother or sister with mental illness in adulthood. And that's understandable. We always tell parents that there's no right or wrong way for a sibling to take on responsibility in adulthood, and the sibling relationship will change over time. So it's important that the sibling has a voice in 
how he or she wants to participate in adult life together with a brother or sister with mental health issues. That must feel freeing to parents just to not feel like there's one way or one expectation they should have. But in general, like what makes a well sibling resilient? How do you know as a parent if the sibling is adjusting well enough to, you know, hopefully have a stronger relationship in the long term with the one who struggled or struggles? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that the resiliency among siblings is we look at the same features of resiliency among kids with all kinds of family makeup. So, you know, features of resiliency are the ability to bounce back and to make sense of new situations and act appropriately in them and learn from past experiences. That's true for all kids, not just siblings of kids with mental health issues. Yeah. And I would think too, just being able to have their own independent sense of self and their own life, you know, and their own joy, even if they you know, also remain connected to their sibling and even maybe responsible for them. We often tell parents that it's really important in childhood for the sibling to have his or her own life outside of this. You know, we encourage families to make sure that siblings have opportunities to shine, you know, whether it's going to a dance class or participating in hobbies that are very meaningful to them. We know that that those kind of activities are very enriching. Yeah, I love that. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would want people to know about siblings? Well, there is one thing that popped into my head, and it has to do with meal times and family time, <laughs> because I feel like a lot of families where there are um, kids struggling with mental health issues, there can be a tremendous amount of stress around dinner time or any mealtime, but particularly dinner time. And I feel like in our culture, we're, or our society, we're all conditioned to believe that sitting down to a family meal together is kind of a hallmark of a, a healthy family. What we do know in general about family mealtimes is that among families of typically developing kids, sitting down for family meals does lead to greater outcomes among children in typical families. But it's a different picture when we're thinking about siblings of kids who can't sit still through a meal or are screaming or throwing things. And when a mealtime is that stressful, that's not going to lead to better outcomes. <laughs> so I really encourage families to not think about the significance and the weight around a family meal. And we want to have positive family interactions. So whether that means having a family snack together when everyone's in a really good place, that's going to be so much more beneficial than forcing kids who are not feeling well to be sitting together for the sake of this idea <laughs> around mealtimes. Yeah. Wow, that's so liberating. I'm sure these parents are so lucky to have this coaching from this program you've done. Oh my gosh. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Do you have any final words of wisdom or encouragement for parents out there who are listening who might be really just starting to either just start thinking about a sibling they hadn't really thought about that perspective or parents who've been really worried about it and feeling guilty and not sure what to do. 
Well, the first thing I want to say for parents who are listening, who have kids who are struggling with mental health issues, is that I have a feeling that you're doing a pretty tremendous job. It's hard to feel like a good parent when you have a child who is struggling. So I really recommend that parents get as much support for themselves as possible. People talk about self-care and it's really hard to engage in self-care activities when you have a child that you're very worried about. So I just want to encourage parents to do the best they can to take care of themselves and to remember that they're really doing the best job they can. And I highly encourage families to visit the website of the Massachusetts Sibling Support Network if they are concerned about sibling issues, because there's a host of resources on that website. Yeah. Yeah. I think on the self-care front, you're right that even if you're in a crisis and you don't feel like you can do much for yourself at all, even just having positive self-talk and recognizing, you know, you're doing the best you can with what you know today, that's just so important. And what you're doing, Emily, I really appreciate what you're doing. And it's just, it's so needed and it's so powerful and important because we can do more for siblings and you're really helping lead the way and making a dent. I will definitely list all these resources that you have and link to your site up on Wild Peace so people can find it and explore it. And depending on whether they're in crisis or they're not, whether they have younger children or older children, they can find the appropriate resources because I know you have quite a few things up there. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kendra. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. You've been listening to Wild Peace, a podcast created to bolster parents of kids who are struggling with mental health, learning issues, developmental differences, and more. If you'd like to suggest a guest or share your story, we would love to hear from you. Go to wildpeace.org, that's W-I-L-D-P-E-A-C-E dot org, to leave suggestions, see show notes from this episode, and explore more resources. You can also leave a message at 617-433-8582. Since this is a podcast, we especially love hearing your voice. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down to those five purple stars and click. Your positive reviews will ensure that more parents who could use some wild peace can find us. This show is a production of Wild Peace for Parents, a nonprofit dedicated to helping parents find calm and build resilience. Because child well being starts with parent well being. Mm-hmm.